The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. The origin of the third wave of democratization is commonly dated to the Carnation Revolution in Portugal back in 1974. The fall of the Soviet Union accelerated this process until around 2005, when the pace began to slow and it even began to reverse. But Robert Dahl thought about waves of democratization differently. He believed a democratic wave was more like a transformation it was an intensification rather than a proliferation of democracy. Dow allows us to interpret the current rise of populism not as a rejection of democracy, but as a challenge as democratic governance and ideals continue to evolve and transform. Or as Elena Landamore puts it, what you call the crisis of democracy can also be read as the growing pains of a system trying to adjust to the constraints of a globalized economy, an interconnected world, and rising democratic expectations. Elena Landamore offers an alternative approach to imagine democratic governance. It is a democracy without elections or politicians. She calls it open democracy. It relies on representative assemblies where members are selected through lottery, kind of like a jury. Her approach encourages deliberation among ordinary citizens who better represent their communities and societies. This novel approach has many advocates and has already been used in limited ways in many places around the world. We talk quite a bit about political theory, but also we discuss some real-world applications of these ideas. Indeed, Landamore has found inspiration in many of these examples, like the Constitutional Assembly in Iceland or France's Citizen Assembly on Climate Change. These mini-publics offer a novel way to consider the possibilities for democratic government without elections. Elena Landamore is an associate professor of political science at Yale University. She is the author of the book, Open Democracy, Reinventing Popular Rule for the 21st Century. Her research reconsiders the meaning of both representation and legitimacy. Robert Dahl was unclear of what the next transformation of democracy would become. I feel the same uncertainty. But I do believe Elena Landemore challenges us to consider new experiments in democracy happening right now. Perhaps a third transformation of democracy has already begun. But for now, this is my interview with Elena Landemore. Elaine Landemore, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you so much for inviting me, Justin. Elaine, your book belongs at the intersection between philosophy and political science, in my opinion. I'm just curious to get started. Do you consider yourself more of a philosopher or a political scientist? Oh, excellent question. I will uh, say that I consider myself more of a political theorist because that's really the name we give to political philosophers who belong in um, political science departments. And I used to find those categories kind of meaningless, but actually I am starting to see the contribution that you can make when you're trained as a political philosopher you know in the history of ideas I wrote uh, my first book on David Hume and the notion of probability in his, uh, in his philosophy so at the intersection of a political philosophy and empirical uh, political science which is something I I sort of 
trained a little bit in because I was in a doctoral program in political science, but really only turned to with real interest much later uh, when I started um, covering the, the Icelandic process. And I found out that actually, you know, it's so much more interesting to theorize on the basis of actual empirical evidence and on the basis of insights that you develop studying what people think and, and do and feel and, and became so much more real. And so I don't, I don't consider myself a political scientist. I don't think I'm, um, I'm a comparativist, you know, in the full sense of the term. I, I, I call it, what I do, I call it inductive political theory, which is uh, starting from the observation of reality and, and uh, trying to generalize on, on the basis of what I observe or on the, on the basis of intuitions that I, that I have, but that I also encounter in other people that, that nurture my own intuitions, something like that. So I don't, I think that, in fact, it's a lot of what other political theorists, for example, like Jane Mansbridge, um, have been doing for many years. But it's still pretty different from theorizing in the vein of, I don't know, somebody like Philippe Petit or, 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 or even John Rawls or, or, you know, people like that. I think it's, it's perhaps more in the vein of, of what Jürgen Habermas did, actually, because I think he liked to compare himself to a sociologist and, and always thought that he was... Um, uh, rationalizing the 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 real in a way, like the the intuition that were already uh, and the norms that were already encoded in uh, in existing institutions. So, except that I, I suppose I, I, his method is perhaps more descriptive. And I, I, okay, I don't really know, but that's where I'm positioning myself as a as an inductive political theorist. There we go. Habermas is a good example, not just because you both belong to the space of deliberative democratic theory but also because Habermas constantly comes up in the writings of other political scientists. That's uh, right. Yeah. Democratic theorists that belong much more to the comparative field oftentimes lean on Habermas for that broader political theory basis. You see him cited all over the place in, in comparative theory as well as, as well as broader political theory. Yeah, but I wonder, is it because of his method or is it because of his normative ideal of what democracy is about? And I, I tend to think it's because of the latter, actually, that he has, a, he has the by far most attractive uh, normative theory of democracy. I mean, in a way, you could say that people like generals were not theorizing democracy. They were theorizing liberalism in a, in a somewhat technocratic version of it at, it, you know, at, at that. So, I, so I'm not sure it's because of his method per se, but maybe, maybe it's both. No, I, I would agree with that entirely. It's definitely because of because of the insights that he brought to the table. And John Rawls has, in my opinion, problematic ideas for democratic theory because he creates such a such he essentially establishes what a democracy is going to decide through his theory of justice. And it makes it very difficult to decide what's left left on the table for democracy to decide. But there's nothing left. Yes, it's a theory of justice. Take it or leave it. And the procedure is uh, not that important to him. But because it's, it's, it's an era also. It's, you know, the 70s, 80s and, and, and the influence, the growing influence of a certain um, economic way of thinking, uh, rational choice theory, which is very, very, you know, the influence of which is very, very uh, palpable in the book. And the sort of disembodied, uh, rational thinker behind a veil of ignorance, all of that is, is really of its time in a way. And not that democratic, I, I would have to agree. Now, to get back to your book about open democracy, your sense of democracy weaves together elements of epistemic and deliberative democracy. So while a lot of your ideas do come across as idealistic, it seems as though you have very practical justifications for democracy. Can you describe what you see as as practical reasons for democratic governance over the alternatives? Uh, yes, what, what I say, what I think you sense is a sort of uh, the, the instrumental sort of, sort of argument for democracy. That's um, that's part of my my theory. I I do value you know uh, democracy and egalitarian and inclusive decision procedures for their intrinsic properties and the fact that they treat people with respect uh, that they manifest. The, the values of equality and inclusion that they foster a sense of identity and all that but at the same time i also care about the instrumental value that they that they have as well because i think it's a constraint on on, on political legitimacy to to deliver all the goods meaning good governance and my argument is that given certain conditions 
given uh, the uncertainty of politics in particular, we are better off making decisions collectively about uh, our life in, in common via inclusive and egalitarian decision procedures than via less egalitarian and less inclusive procedures. So it's, it's a very simple argument. We're just, we're just smarter when we pull the wisdom of all of us without exception than when we exclude even one person. Like we miss out on, on a perspective that could turn out to have been crucial. And we can tell that ahead of time who's going to be essential or non-essential. So we have to include everyone. I think that's the crux of what I was getting at. You really think that when we are more inclusive and more open, government functions better than when it keeps out opinions, when it restricts and limits ideas. There's a quote in your book where you say, open democracy is not simply more genuinely democratic. It is, as a result of its openness, likely to perform better as well. Yes, except I wouldn't phrase it as government functions better. This sounds very um, almost technocratic. What I want to say is that the decisions and the laws that we're likely to, in to impose on ourselves are going to be are likely to be better, likely to be more in our interest and, and track certain facts about the real world more accurately than if we go through less inclusive uh, and egalitarian procedures. Functional governance to me is, is a bit more um, a, a wider claim. Like you need an administration, you need to have the means to pay bureaucrats properly, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you could have uh, excellent lawmaking and then bad governance or bad, bad government because you, you're, you're lacking these other factors. I'm really focused primarily on, on the quality of lawmaking. That's at the heart of a, of a democracy for me. So that's what I'm trying to maximize in a way, right? Uh, but then there are other conditions under which, you know, uh, that, that you need to gather for effective uh, government more generally. You need, you need absence of corruption, you know, there, there are a lot more. It's not a, a sufficient condition, if you want. C completely fair. But you do feel that the more open yes. we can be, the yeah. more opinions we can, we can integrate, the better the legislative process will work. Which brings us to the point that we're going to talk about open democracy. Can you describe open democracy and how it distinguishes itself from representative or elective democracy? Okay, so just to be as uh, blunt and clear as possible, I would say that open democracy, to my mind, doesn't need elections. Um, you could have a version of it that is entirely non-electoral, at least when it comes to the legislative power, which again is, for me, the, the defining power of a, of a regime. So I would see an open democracy as a system in which the legislative power in, is in the hands a randomly selected assembly of a few hundred citizens. Uh, and this assembly is itself connected to uh, a number of other randomly selected assemblies at the local and regional levels. And they are connected to the larger public through online platforms, but also local meetings, a whole network of, uh, you know, participatory uh, methods and, and techniques and technologies to, again, ensure that, that we really tap the collective wisdom of all. But in a way, importantly, that doesn't require all of us to be mobilized at all points in time, because that's too much. And that's not even, I think, desirable. People want to pursue other ends and raise their children and, and do poetry or, or, or or I don't know, run a business or so. I, I don't think we all have vocations to be mobilized all the time, but I think that the idea is to keep the system as open as possible and to rotate in and out of power as many people uh, and as, 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 as people as diverse as possible over time. So that, that's, that's the main difference, meaning you could have electoral components, maybe the executive figures re you know, need to remain uh, uh, elected, uh, you would still have a judiciary, presumably. Uh, you would still have uh, administrations and experts helping these uh, randomly selected, I call them open mini publics, run the show, if you want. But it wouldn't be centered around elections of representatives, if you want. The way I think the paradigm we call representative democracy, which has been really neatly a sort of a, uh, reduced to principles by Bernard Manin in the, the principles of representative government is, right? Representative government in, in Bernard Manin's book, it's really about periodic elections. That's it. That's, that's the definition, more or less. And that's not the heart of my system. In fact, my system could do without periodic elections. Oh, and I forgot to mention, 
because participation rights are very important, they are the, the first principle of, of my own system, you would also have, in addition to these, uh, you know, uh, lotocratic bodies uh, making laws on our behalf, moments of mass participation that would be referenda on the proposal that come out of these assemblies. I do think it's really important to supplement these, um, these lotocratic uh, representative moments with moments of, of mass voting. Um, not all the time, maybe three times a year, but like often enough that it becomes a, an established norm that all of us have a say on, on some of the key decisions. I think it's interesting how your sense of open democracy is different than the way other people describe ideas of lotocratic representation or sortition because you make a real effort to include the general public into the decision-making, whether it's through an election where you have direct democracy on a proposal or whether it's like in Iceland where you had people providing crowdsourced comments mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on a constitution. I think that really sets your idea of open democracy apart from somebody like, I'm going to probably butcher the name, but Van Rohrbrock, um, that, yeah. yes, yeah, that wrote about it in his book Against Elections, really made the case against elections and in defense of sortition. You take it a step farther to try to integrate the public in addition to the process of sortition. I thought that was fascinating. So absolutely. And that's, that, that idea comes straight from observation, actually. So that, that's a good example of what I mean by inductive political theory. Because I think my instinct might have been to stick to just, just democratize the representative level, but not necessarily open the representative level to the rest of the populace. And in fact, the, the Icelanders really blew me away with this idea of, um, you know what, political science tells us that we have to write a constitution behind closed doors, that that's the doxa on, on the matter, because you want to insulate uh, constituents from the passions of, of outside, uh, you know, uh, masses. Well, no, we're just not going to do it that way. We're just going to do it transparently, and we're going to post our draft successively online and try to see if... Anyone has a good idea that we could integrate. And, and in fact, I think that it came partly from an engineering mind, perhaps not even one of the 25, but like when the tech support, I think is potentially, I, I might be wrong about this, but at least one of the persons who was on, on staff might have suggested that, that that was an option and they all went for it or something like that. And, and so it's this idea that, you know, writing law is not that different from writing a code, right? You want as many minds as many eyes as you want to spot the bugs and to fix it as you go. And so while it's still in progress, why would you deprive yourself from the help and insight and wisdom of other people? Especially if you've, you, you know, you're in a position to acknowledge that we're all uh, fallible human beings and not some kind of elites endowed with you know, superior knowledge. And, and, so, and, and also time was short. They, they only had four months. So one way was to outsource some of the information gathering uh, efforts to, to crowds. So that's why I really cared about making this open. Explain a little bit about how Iceland went through its constitutional process, right. because you do a great job of explaining how they went about it, the, the challenges that they had, how they overcame some of those challenges and the challenges that remained. Right. So in 2008, uh, like uh, many other countries, they went through a, a massive financial and economic crisis, but it was particularly enormous in the country because it's so small. It's uh, 320,000 citizens or something like that. So they burned seven times their GDP in just a few months. So of course, it brought down the existing government. And the new government was uh, left, I think, said, well, part of the issue is our constitution. We should have had like tougher restrictions on, on certain things. And somehow they thought maybe rewriting the constitution would help. At any rate, it was a good moment to do this, this process of rewriting because the, the constitution they had inherited in, in uh, basically uh, written in, in 1947 was just a, a handover from a pre previous colonizers. So they thought that this text was like dated and archaic and not really fit for a modern country. And it was overly presidential. You know, the, the text was mostly about the president's powers and very, very little about the people's powers or even the the other uh, powers. So they thought, okay, we need to write something more modern, more democratic, more, more in line with the values of a modern Icelandic people. So the first thing they did was organize a national forum of 950 um, randomly selected citizens who gathered for just one day to 
brainstorm about the values and ideas and principles they wanted to see encoded in this new social contract. They did that. And then it was uh, it, 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 it sort of uh, amounted to a 200-page report that was handed over to the 25 constitutional drafters, if you will. Those were actually elected, but elected from a pool that excluded by law all existing, uh, all professional politicians, all politicians in power at the time. So you ended up with a much more diverse set of people, not as diverse as if it had been random, of course, but still. First of all, there was strict parity because it's Scandinavia, so they, they actually it's not Scandinavia, it's Iceland, so they, 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 they wanted parity and they, they got it more or less. Um, they had a student on there, they had a an electrician who was the father of Bjork, actually. They had a, so, so, you know, some people who were socially salient, so that's where it wasn't as diverse necessarily as, as it could have been, but they were very diverse. You had a, a, a handicapped woman, a disabled woman uh, who, who was also um, a human rights activist. So they brought in all those perspectives that are not typically uh, represented in, in constitutional assemblies, uh, at least, you know, as we imagine them to this day. And, and then uh, this group of 25 decided to, do their thing relatively transparently. So they put out the PDFs and the minutes of all their meetings for the population to check that out. Uh, they also decided that every draft would go online for a round of feedback from the crowd. Uh, in total, they put out, I think, 12 drafts over 11 weeks, something like that. I think that, that's what I say in the, in the chapter. And they got some comments, not that many. So to be fair, because it probably was the first time it was tried, they didn't have much um, budget for a you know, publicization, and by the by the time they got to that stage, the enthusiasm had waned a little bit. The situation had improved. The FMI had rescued the the country, so people were less worried about their future, uh, and and opposition parties were already starting to lobby against them. So you know, but so they only got a few thousand comments, but some of them were quite key. So there were uh, comments from the. Uh, UNICEF, uh, the Organization for Children, that sort of emphasized the rights of children that should be sort of better um, formulated in the text, the the rights of uh, transgender people that were not initially in the text either. There was a right to the internet that came out from a suggestion made on Facebook, for example. And uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Alex Hudson, has actually measured that 10% of the online contributions made a causal difference to the final text. Right, so that's pretty spectacular when you think about it because. The comparison points we have are the processes in uh, in South Africa or in uh, in Brazil. And first of all, we nobody has measured the impact of external input on the on the text, but we suspect that actually the impact was null because the process was so much governed by parties that, in fact, even more so in the case of, of um, South Africa, that they, they st struck the deals, and once they struck the deal among themselves, there was no point in, in you know reading through. 2 million submissions and trying to include some, some of that in the text. So it was more for show. It was more for the, the purpose of legitimizing the process with a veneer of participation. But really, the participation didn't make a difference and didn't really matter beyond that sort of expressive uh, value. So in the end, um, there was a referendum on the proposal, the, the draft proposal for a new constitution, and two-thirds of the voting population approved it. And that was sometime in October 2012. Unfortunately, the following spring, when the text came to Parliament, it was supposed to be uh, voted on, and then the Parliament would have had to dissolve itself. There would have been um, new elections, and the new Parliament would have had to vote positively on the text again. And the, the text failed at the, at the first hurdle, really, because uh, Parliament refused to vote on it. So, in fact, they never even organized the vote. They, they, there was a technicality, they missed the deadline on purpose or something like that. And by that time, in fact, the, the right-wing party that had been opposed to the process all along had been back in power. So, you know, it's, so that, that's a very sad story. But it was the first, first time this was really tried uh, so seriously, I think. And uh, it, maybe it's not so surprising that it failed, but it creates a really interesting precedent. And for, for my purposes, it really expanded my imagination and allowed me to envisage what that would mean for democracy in general, and especially for ordinary lawmaking, really. I'd like to take a step back to talk about the basic theory behind your work, because I'm not sure that we've, we've entirely done that. In your book, you write, representative democracy was born as an alternative to democracy. Can you explain why 
your idea of open democracy is more democratic than representative democracy. So representative democracy was really a representative government at the beginning, right? And it was meant as an alternative to both uh, monarchical orders and democratic orders, because democracy was a bad word back in the 18th century for many people, and especially the founders of the French or um, of the, of the American Republic and even the French Republic to a degree. So they wanted to have a representative system. In the US, uh, Madison said that he wanted to exclude the people in its collective capacity from any share in the exercise of power. There was a demophobia you know, inscribed in the American constitution, which is why to this day, you don't have the possibility of a referendum at the national level, right? You can't have a referendum on, on uh, gun regulation or... Uh, you know, on anything really. And that's because of the way the, the, the constitution was conceived. Um, and it was meant to, you know, the, the winners of the historical debates between the federalists and the anti-federalists were the federalists. And they had a conception of representation as a filter, right? You, you were supposed to put in power elected officials whose wisdom and virtue would allow them to filter down the, the judgment of regular citizens and produce something better. By contrast, the, the anti-federalists who lost the debate were in favor of a mirror image conception of, of representation, whereby what was important was that the people in charge of making laws and decisions on behalf of the rest looked like, felt like, and thought like the, the people. And they lost for many reasons. I, I won't get into, into them. But So we, we end up with a very elitist vision of what the job of elite, elected officials is. And then later, you've got the party system that sort of grafts itself onto this um, original elitist design and perhaps uh, to some degree democratizes it because new entrants can come in and challenge the system. And, and then at the same time, in the 19th century and 20th century, we democratize uh, the vote, uh, you know, make the franchise uh, universal. But it doesn't change the fact that the distribution of uh, power at the top is still profoundly inegalitarian because it's based on choice. And choice, as it turns out in human being, uh, has profoundly uh, inegalitarian results because we tend to, as, as a species, you know, focus our, our, um, our, our preference uh, for, you know, on charismatic, uh, visible, socially extraordinary people. And so it's kind of always the same who end up being excluded from these uh, access to positions of, of power, right? Like the, the shy, the, the not so charismatic uh, women, minorities, although it's getting better, but still. And, and generally people who don't have the qualities to attract people's choices. And in fact, democracy should not necessarily be about that kind of choice. It should be perhaps more about one person, one lottery ticket, every one of us regardless of competence, uh, charisma, people's skills, money, gets a chance to be in a position of, uh, of power. So that's the problem I have with elections. In fact, it's, it's not, nothing terribly new. I, I, I'm just basically rehearsing the conclusions of you know, people from Aristotle to Bernard Manin to David von Raybrook. I mean, there's a sort of... It's fascinating to think that we, we knew all these things and somehow we've never really uh, derived the implications of, of the fact that election is an oligarchic or at least partly oligarchic mechanism of selection. So that's, that's the thought that we have democratized a regime that's fundamentally uh, elitist and, and we've reached the limit of what it can do. And so maybe it's time to imagine something more radically democratic with, which is centered around ordinary citizens uh, rather than socioeconomic elites. The Federalist Papers refer to a sense of, of natural aristocracy there is a lack of representation built into the idea of election. So even if we move past sexism and racism and some of those very obvious challenges, there is always going to be a sense that people are, are voting on people in part because they're not like normal people, that they stand apart in some way, even if it's just the fact that they're naturally extroverted, that they're naturally charismatic. It doesn't mean that they're better at legislating. It just means that there that there's some kind of distinction between them. And you're you're right. There's a there was a debate in the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers that I remember where Alexander Hamilton felt very strongly that different groups could be represented by other groups that were related to them. So, for instance, a mechanic that may not know as much about governance may 
have a linkage to somebody who's a larger business owner. And so they'd be represented by that larger business owner. The anti-federalists said the opposite. They said, you really need to have people who represent those actual groups to represent those interests. And we've seen that happen throughout American history. When we look at racial minorities, sexual minorities, when those groups aren't included, their interests aren't taken into account. So I can completely understand where a more diverse selection of, of people being represented is going to allow new interests to come to light. One of the problems that we currently have in democracy is very few of our representatives lack a college degree. And this is a problem not just in the United States, but around the world, because we're electing people who look like they're qualified. And that's one of the elements of populism that's a concern is that the representatives don't look like the people. Yeah, actually, in the US, I'm not sure it's the lack of a college degree, the, the, the lack of people without a college degree. That's a problem. It's the fact that 82% of Congress belongs to the 10 richest percent of the population. That tells you everything you need to know. Yes, rich people can represent poor people. I mean, they could, but they just don't. They rule for themselves and their caste. I mean, it's just the fact. I, I think at this point, I just don't see how you can deny it. Uh, whether it's from corruption or, or incapacity to relate or who knows, but I think that descriptive representation has to be part of the fix. Uh, and you're absolutely right to say that when minorities and women are not in the room, other people don't rule in their interests. I mean, it's just, it's just again, in theory, you know, white people, male, you know, males should be able to represent minorities and women. But the fact is that they, they, they don't do it or they don't do it well enough. And so it's better for these groups to be represented by people like themselves. And, I, and I'm not necessarily a, a, a proponent of descriptive representation uh, because I think that only, you know, uh, women can represent women. Or, but it's just that we observe empirically that when women are lacking, when minorities are lacking, it's not going well for them in terms of, of their interests being furthered. So, you know, and, and, and the fact that another problem I wanted to mention listening to you is that we've called democracy a regime that's not all that democratic. We call representation and, and representative a system that isn't. So it's really like what Marx was saying about the camera obscura of, of ideology um, inver inverting the reality. I, I do feel like there's some of that going on. Like, and, and the point of open democracy, because I've often been asked, why don't you admit that after all, your open democracy is just another kind of representative democracy, which, which, it, which it is. But I think it's important to call it something else and to theorize it in opposition to the paradigm, the historical paradigm of representative democracy, because I feel that otherwise it's just going to be co-opted to sort of uh, bolster the existing system. When in fact, I'm, I really have in mind something that's quite different, even if it has um, a representative uh, dimension, by which I mean not an electoral dimension, but really a moment of delegation of power to people who are going to be in charge of standing for us acting on our behalf, uh, legislating on our behalf, because we simply can't do it all at once all the time. So that, that I'm willing to say, yes, there is a, you know, a moment of representation that's needed. It just doesn't have to look like the historical version uh, we call uh, representative democracy. And I agree entirely that people can represent and can act in the interest, like men can act in the interests of women. Absolutely, Pe yes. No, I don't want to deny yes. that. It's just yes. that... But but what I do think is important about having different people in the room with different backgrounds is the agenda setting power changes. It doesn't require a majority of women to be on a board or be in Congress before just having the voice there adds to the the ideas that are circulated within the group where new things get added to the agenda by having voices of african americans in congress ideas are actually considered where people begin to place votes that they just wouldn't have voted for in the past right, so right. it it's one thing to say oh if it was on the table i would vote for it but if it never gets on the table it doesn't matter so i'm curious in an open democracy, how do we go about setting the agenda? 
my concern about lotocratic institutions, uh, legislative institutions, is is elites capture the agenda setting power. How do they ensure that they that they retain that power? Is it something that you envision that those assemblies last for a couple years so that mm-hmm. they have that ability, or is it how do they determine who the experts are that they're going to listen to? Yes. How do, how do we set those? I, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds where I box you in, but I, I'd still like to have an idea of how it's going to function. Right. I just want to, before I go into that, I just wanted to mention an example of, um, of why, you know, even though men can represent women, uh, whites can represent blacks, etc., it just isn't the same. I think that there's a, a you know, in standpoint um, epistemology, you know, that we, we, we you know, we say that there's a kind of knowledge that that people have in virtue of the position they occupy in the world. That's it's not that it's not transmittable, but it's just so much more powerful when it comes from the the mass of the person who's really occupying that standpoint, rather than being filtered through the perspective of someone who's not in that position. And so I'm on the faculty senate at my uh, institution, at Yale University, and. And we uh, recently audited uh, some postdocs who were telling us about the terrible burden of childcare in this pandemic when you're on a stipend that's, uh, you know, much less than a tenured faculty salary. And of course, we all knew that. I was a postdoc, I remember. And, but somehow, you know, you forget, you get accustomed to your comfort and, your, and, you, and you're just hearing it, the anguish and, and, the, and the panic that you can sense in, in, their, in their reports, the descriptive, you know, richness of what's going on in their lives, it hits you, you know, and it makes you support them and, and want to speak on their behalf and in a way that you wouldn't with the best of intentions if they were not in the room with you and telling you those things and, you, you, and, and if you are not somewhat accountable to them later as well. So that's why it's so important that, uh, that the relevant interests are represented in the room and not just spoken for by people who don't share those life, those lived experience. Um, and then turning to your second question about how would they set a, an agenda? Yes, I know it's it's a common objection. So let me just give you, I find that the best way to answer these objections is through examples of what's been being done, because when, when something works, then it becomes much harder to claim that it's theoretically, theoretically impossible. So there is a, um, a very good uh, example in Ost-Belgium at the moment. So it's a small region, German-speaking region of Belgium, where the local parliament, which basically legislates for a constituency of 76,000 people, it's very small, has decided they would create a council of 27 citizens who can give them an agenda. So they, they said they would commit to following the agenda set by this council about the priorities for the region. And 27 people, it's small enough that they can quickly come to an agreement and organize an, an agenda. So it's very, it sounds very feasible, right? It's, a, it's the size of a faculty meeting, really. So we know it's doable. You have rules, you have a chair, you have you know, people who have different roles, and it's perfectly manageable, even if it's a bit time-consuming, etc. So you can do it. Um, the question is, how does that work for a large assembly of 150, for example? And that has been a big issue, for example, for the... Citizens Convention on Climate, uh, for climate that took place in France from 2019 to now, because there are too many to really self-manage and self-organize. So what, what happened is that the, the government appointed uh, uh, or had other institutions, uh, because I think they wanted to preserve some independence, appoint a governance committee of 15 people who were not part of the assembly themselves, but were like experts on climate, experts on participatory democracy, or just representatives of various institutions in the French political landscape. And these 15 people basically ruled the assembly. And, and basically, they gave it its agenda, which was already kind of dictated by the French president, because he had said, I want this convention to tackle the following question. How do we uh, reduce uh, French green gas emissions by 40% of the 1990s levels? by 2030 in a spirit of social justice. So that was the agenda. So my question is really, so they delivered, they give uh, 149 proposals that are almost ready to be turned into law, you know, really specific, turned into juridic, uh, legal language even. I mean, they really proved they could do it. But the question is, yes, but they were kind of like co- coached and given an agenda from, from which they couldn't deviate. So for example, they couldn't go into the question of degrowth 
or you know exiting capitalism altogether or uh, you know they, they just they didn't have that uh, luxury and, and and they couldn't talk about nuclear power either nuclear plants nuclear energy so they, they were within limits so is there a world in which these assemblies could actually um, give themselves their own agenda and i don't see why not uh, it's just a matter of institutional design and giving them enough time to appropriate those procedures and make them work for themselves so you could imagine uh, so for example the the in the french case they decided after one session to include two representatives of the citizens on the governance committee precisely to have their perspective as well and they rotated these two representatives every every weekend every session and they were chosen those representatives are chosen at random not elected right so you could imagine having a, a governance committee that's entirely made up of randomly selected citizens from within the 150 and then having uh, positions that are maybe more administrative like note takers or i don't i don't know or, or that would be still part of the 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 job of the staff but so anyway, you could imagine a logistical organization of these assemblies so that they can generate their own agenda and um, and govern their own procedures, if you want. We're not there yet, but I, I don't see why it's unthinkable. So we started the conversation talking a little bit about philosophy. The first real philosopher that, that we have documentation from, that we have writings from, is Plato. And he offers a utopic vision of how we can reorder society and governance in his book, The Republic. But he also explains how it's likely to evolve over time, corrupt and decay. Let, yeah. Let's take the open yeah. democracy. Let's assume that open democracy is put in place and it works perfect yeah. the yeah. way that yeah. you want it to. Okay. Um, we're going we're gonna to start there, that it's working right. As politics evolve and change, how does it decay and corrupt over time? What goes wrong? What are the challenges that remain? Uh, okay, so just want to challenge one thing you said, that you said that the first philosopher that we have writings of uh, was Plato. Well, I, I don't know. We, we also have, a, I think we have fragments from other you know, people like the... Totally fair. You know, and, and, and I just want to mention one, which is uh, the sophist um, Protagoras, because... Uh, you know, he's probably the first uh, democratic theorist that we, we know of who had actually you know, certain visions about everything being relative to man, which, which were seen as relativism, but could also be seen as profoundly democratic in terms of there's no higher value than human judgment. And so anyway, just, just to be a little uh, playful here. Um, <laughs> I, I'll give you that. I, I've, I've, I've obsessed over the pre-Socratic, so I'll, um, yeah, so, I, I love that idea. Uh, and then how does uh, open democracy decline? It's a fantastic question that I have given zero thought, to be honest. So let me try to improvise. Again, based on what I've observed, you know, in in the French Convention, I can see the dangers, some of the risks um, that can happen. And w one thing that I I think could happen if it's not done well, because of course, you know, all of that has to be done well to be to be successful, is when you let the natural leaders take over the conversation and. And then you reproduce some of the problems you have in electoral democracy, because every group, even at random, will have people who stand out, who people who are more charismatic. And, and inevitably, in every deliberative group, these people will tend to take over. They will speak more, more loudly or more convincingly. Or, and in some ways, it's good because if they are natural leaders, they also have um, capacities to induce others to do things. They have capacity to uh, reveal to others their own capacity if they're, if they're good leaders, not just, you know, bullies or anything like that. But they, it can only go so far. It can only go as far as it's beneficial for the group. The minute it becomes about them and about creating um, followers and like a uh, movement, uh, etc., I think it's, it, it harms the, the principle of, of these assemblies. And, and for, for various reasons, in the French case, they decided not to have facilitators at each table, for example, because that there just wasn't enough money in the budget. So they said, OK, we're just going to trust these smaller groups of citizens. So it was between six at a table to like 30 in a large room to self-monitor, right? But of course, I think it's, it's really, I mean, you could count on internalized norms after a point, but I think we're not at that point. And so, of course, all the classic sort of gender and, and uh, you know, um, racial, you know, hegemonic tendencies surfaced, and I don't think they were checked sufficiently. So I'm not sure how harmful it was overall. 
uh, because I also observed an educational process of people, you know, trying to say, oh, you know, you haven't spoken in a long time. And what do you think? And and people trying to curb the, the you know, excessive behavior of others. So, so on balance, I'm not sure what, what was the net sort of uh, result. I think it was overall, I'm pretty happy with that experiment. So I, I think it worked well, but I did see these tendencies. They, they keep coming back. So you could see a, a process that gets completely hijacked by the natural leaders. And, and the fact is that currently um, there's a, a part of the process in France that hasn't been theorized very well and is escaping everyone, actually. It's, it's that these natural leaders are the ones who continue the conversation with ministers and parliamentarians um, outside of the convention, but as representative of the convention, but self-selected one, right? Like they're totally, uh, it's only based on, on the willingness and, and time availability, which selects for a certain type of people. And so... That's, that doesn't seem totally okay to me, but on, on the other hand, at this point, um, I think it's probably fine to let some experimental spontaneous order emerge of all this mess to see what's, what's feasible and what's not, because anyway, there's no alternative. There's no funding to get the people who don't want to participate to participate. So, But, but I could see that degenerating into yet another version of um, a rule by uh, natural aristocrats, if you want. Uh, so I think that's another danger that's more something that critics of open democracy would say, and I'm not sure I'm convinced, is that experts will take over, meaning the staff, the administrative staff that's permanent would uh, basically, uh, you know, on stealth mode, take over everything. They would just plant ideas. They would control um, the people who, who are given access to the, to the et cetera, et cetera. So you end up with expertocracy instead of uh, authentic democracy. What do you see as the role of the administrative state or maybe the the relationship of the administrative state and a legislative branch that's established through lottery? Generally speaking, I think your question relates to something that's really much on my mind, uh, which is the question of uh, the relationship between experts and ordinary citizens. And in the French convention, what was striking is that Experts will have a tendency to lecture and tell you what to do and what to think and, uh, you know, come on quite strongly, but the citizens wouldn't have it. And so they were kept in the position of servants of the convention rather than sort of dictators of the convention. And I think that, you know, that's the common phrase in the participatory democracy world, which is you should keep experts on tap, not on top. And that's exactly the right sort of uh, design principle, if you want, uh, that, I, that I would propose in terms of the relationship between administrations and legislative uh, assemblies. Concretely, how you do that, how you, how you ensure that, not entirely sure. I think it's, uh, it's, you know, it's going to be a trial and error sort of uh, process. But what I would say is that you need to establish trust because actually, you know, the administrations are quite eager to work with citizens right now in France. The thing that really is important is for administrations and elected officials to realize that they're not succeeding on their own, that they need help from the citizens. And if they put themselves in this position, um, that they both need help and that they're here to help, I think it can prevent some of the takeover by experts. But there needs to be respect and and there needs to be uh, enough uh, familiarity with this kind of processes to to trust them, really. So I think it's it's going to be a long road to get there. So as, as we begin to wrap up, your idea of open democracy comes with multiple ideas of, of reform that kind of come together, interact with one another, and work together. If there was just one reform that we were able to pass that would have a meaningful effect for democracy today, what would it be? So I'll tell you about an idea that I and a, and a bunch of other um, sort of people here in France have put forward in an op-ed um, in the Journal du Dimanche in France. Uh, and I think it could apply to the U.S. as well, actually. We, we called for a convention on democratic renewal because we think that uh, there's a sort of a democratic exhaustion in France. That the institutions are not working well, that at the same time, people are, are buying, I think, this idea of participatory and deliberative democracy the convention is, is now very much a, a political actor. Convention for Climate is very much a political actor in the French landscape. It's known, it's talked about, it's discussed. It's, so, so I think it, there's, there's a space now to envisage something more radical, which would be how do we think collectively about what we need to change about our institutions? Because see, 
even the way you asked me, the, the, the question you asked me is the wrong one because I don't want to be the one literally telling you, oh, you need to, you know, get rid of the Senate and replace the the House of elected officials with a randomly selected uh, assembly. It's just, I'm just one, I, you know, set of ideas. It's very poor. It's very thin in some ways. So it's better if I'm part of a conversation where everybody's involved and my ideas are discussed and other people's ideas are discussed. And I would trust the outcome of such a process better than my own ideas, if you want. I think that if uh, we had 150 randomly selected citizens talking about what can we do to improve the French system, we would be surprised, I think. We would be, you know, I would love to see what would come out of this. And maybe they would be very radical and they'd say, yes, we need to have like a, a sixth republic and change everything. And Or they would, they might say, no, we just need to do some adjustments here and there. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not the, you know, there are lots of people out there with all kinds of ideas. Um, there's Van Redbrook, there's a, uh, Dominique Rousseau in France, who calls for what he calls a continuous democracy, which is a phrase I like because it's a sort of temporal version of my own uh, open democracy. I, I prefer the spatial metaphor. It goes for the temporal one. And, and what if, you know, a group of randomly selected citizens processed all of those ideas, passed it through their collective filter and came out with something entirely their own, right? So that's, that's one idea. And I think that it may, it's, it's a procedure that could be uh, tried out in, in the U.S. It's just that, you know, Trump took the U.S. 20 years backwards, I think. So I always feel like I, I'm super radical when I talk to people in the U.S., but it's no longer radical in France. It's happening, and it's happening in Belgium. It's happening in, in Germany. It's happening in Scotland. It's happening in Spain. It's happening in U.K. Really, the U.S. is a total anomaly uh, amongst uh, advanced democracies from that point of view, perhaps because it's so large, Perhaps because this constitution is so old and so counter-majoritarian and anti-participation and who knows, but it's going to be a long road for, for the U.S. to, to recover from the, the Trump era, I think. That was the most democratic way to answer a question about democracy. That, that, <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank Princeton University Press for a copy of Open Democracy. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox is at democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.